Well, let's get started. Um, <clears throat> welcome to what we've affectionately called the breakfast show, the breakfast portion of the, uh, the colloquium. Whoops, uh, already things are falling apart. A pencil fell, no big deal. Um, and, and to a trip to the past, as opposed to the present and possibly the future, uh, which are going to be talked about in most of the uh, sessions at this very ambitious and very interesting colloquium. <clears throat> in this session, um, we're going to be looking backward and talking about historical roots or the roots in history of American morality in uh, foreign policy and in domestic affairs. I'm Sean Willens from the um, History Department and from the American Studies Department, and I'll be moderating today's discussion. Um, but I want to take a little time out, um, point of privilege, I suppose, doing this um, to give some context as to what we're going to be talking about today and why we're talking about the topic we're talking about today. It is an endless topic, the roots of American morality. I mean, it involves almost every aspect of American history. You could imagine it. Can you all hear me, by the way? Okay. You can, you can imagine no part of the American experience being untouched by that. So we're going to be narrowing it down somewhat by talking specifically about slavery and the contests over slavery in the United States as a key site, obviously, for understanding uh, morality and domestic affairs, and then talk about foreign policy in general, although either of those topics could be talked about endlessly as well. In setting all this up, I, I recall a remark I made um, early on in the planning of this conference when um, Anne-Marie Slaughter suggested a colloquium, colloquium on the topic of the return to morality in American public affairs. Since I'm paid to be skeptical, I wondered aloud, probably putting my foot in my mouth, whether she really meant a return to moralism in American public affairs. After all, I could surely bet that one person's book of virtues might very well be another person's book of hypocrisies. Certainly in my admittedly limited involvement in real politics and in writing about it, as opposed to cutthroat academic politics, morality and politics have rarely been synonymous, except in the case of those moral absolutists, like the Garrisonian abolitionists in American history, who for all of their admirable courage and prescience and universalism were also constitutionally allergic to democracy. And many of the claims to morality in our history, whether it be by nativist bigots or temperance reformers or Confederate divines or mugwump do-gooders, have struck other Americans as, in fact, moralistic, attempts to impose a particular way of life, usually a morally objectionable one, in the name of promoting moral virtue. My so out loud musing, however, was rightly challenged because it seems to suggest, I think, that there is no room for morality in politics, that my idea of moralism really strips the uh, uh, politics or strips the turn to morality, whether now or in the past, of any level of integrity, any level even of persuasiveness. And I thought about some other examples in American history where that's true. Actually, a moment not unlike our own, um, not completely like it, but there are certain parallels. The moment of the 1840s and 1850s, when a movement arose in American life, so-called Young America movement, a group of truculent, belligerent expansionists who truly did believe in the uplifting of the oppressed around the world. 
of spreading democracy where democracy everywhere was not only threatened but repressed and in retreat. There was there a morality that was not just sincere but that was absolutely clear. The trouble in the end was that that movement had a huge blind spot over slavery and race, which allowed that movement in time to be commandeered by pro-slavery politicians who were more interested in conquest and spreading slavery than in uplifting the oppressed and spreading democracy. Thinking about that, I happened upon a quotation, nothing to do with this, this colloquium, but I happened upon a quotation from Reinhold Niebuhr in his The Irony of American History that really summed up what I would, was trying to say three or four months ago um, when we were planning this session. That spoke much better to what I had in mind. It concerns directly what might, what might have befallen the United States, this is written in the 1940s, after what Nieper envisaged, or at least hoped, well back in the 1940s, as its triumph over Soviet communism. Nieper certainly believed in morality and in the superior morality of the free world over the communist world. But, being a man well attuned to the treachery of pride and the limits of human perfection and the frailties imposed by original sin, he had words of warning about the blind spots that can overtake even the most indisputable moral efforts in public life. Quote, the winner of the Cold War will inevitably face the imperial problem of using power in global terms, not from one particular center, but, but excuse me, using power in global terms, but from one particular center of authority so preponderant and unchallenged that its world rule would almost certainly violate basic standards of justice. He went on to say, our nation will not recognize our own injustices towards others, for our good intentions in world affairs are self-evident to us. We find it almost as difficult as the communists to believe that anyone could think ill of us, since we are as persuaded as the communists are that our society is so essentially virtuous that only malice could prompt criticism of any of our actions. The point, I suppose, being that where morality is strongest, the blind spots of pride, even hubris, always lurk to turn it inside out, or so Nieper was saying. It's a religious perception, specifically a Christian perception, but it's also a classical Greek conception, and it's a secular godless perception as well, and it needs, I think, to be considered soberly in any discussion of morality and public affairs. To discuss those matters soberly, we are very, very fortunate to have two very distinguished members of the Princeton community um, to talk about both foreign affairs and specifically the issue of slavery. In reverse order in which they're going to be speaking, <clears throat> your programs will give you the full bio biographies. I won't uh, embarrass them by giving all of their, uh, the, their achievements today, but I'll mention briefly. Paul Miles, who teaches American Diplomatic History at Princeton University. Dr. Miles is a graduate of the United States Military Academy. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, where he read modern history. He was an Army Captain in Vietnam in 1965 and served a long and distinguished career in the military, winding up teaching at West Point and then, fortunately, coming to Princeton. He's the author of FDR's Admiral William Leahy and the Making of Grand Strategy in World War II, and he has taught here in the history department, I believe, since 1998. Also speaking will be James Moorhead of the Princeton Theological Seminary. Jim is the Mary McIntosh Bridge Professor of American Church History at the seminary, graduate of Yale. His scholarship is concentrated on millennialism, evangelicalism, and social reform, as well as on the institutional history 
of the American churches. His books include uh, a, a work that I certainly still very much give to my graduate students to read. It really is the best book on, on its subject by far, American Apocalypse, Yankee Protestants and the Civil War, 1860 to 1869. But he has also written, written widely um, on another, another, a number of other topics concerned with millennialism and really the decline of traditional Protestantism in American life. He is also a senior editor of the Journal of Presbyterian History, and he is a, an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church USA. All right, I've taken up more than enough time. Um, we're going to start by talking about domestic affairs and with Jim Moorhead. Sean alluded to my, one of my other hats, that is as an ordained uh, minister. I suppose that's an advantage because one that gets used to speaking to sparsely populated uh, congregations. Uh, let me begin my reflections uh, with uh, an event that occurred in 1688. In that year, several uh, members of the Society of Friends or Quakers in Germantown, Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia, made one of the first recorded protests in North America against the system of slavery. They based much of their argument on the, go the golden rule. And they also asserted that there existed no more justification for the enslavement of, of Africans than for the perpetual bondage of white people. The protest, in good Quaker fashion, was sent up the ascending ladder of Quaker administrative meetings until the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting refused to pass judgment on it. Thereafter, the resolution slipped into oblivion and was not discovered again until the 1840s. Now, I think our first instinctive presentist reaction is to say, well, why wasn't it self-evident that slavery was immoral? that it was contrary to religious and Christian values. It seems to me that if we are to gain historical perspective, though, we have to turn the question around. The question is not why, historically, did others not see this, the rightness of this. The question is rather how, given the fact that there had been very little in the way of an anti-slavery rationale previously, how is it and why is it that anti-slavery did emerge. What I propose to do th this morning is to talk uh, briefly about the events that came together, a confluence of, of forces that made anti-slavery a, a thinkable alternative. And then second, to look at some of the stages by which that developed in the United States and its impact upon the Protestant churches. I'm emphasizing the Protestant churches because they were by far and away uh, the most numerous in America at the time. But let us first note uh, that slavery was not unambiguously condemned in the Western moral tradition prior to the 1700s. I think we need to uh, take note of the fact, for example, that classic books in the tradition, for example, Plato's Republic took slavery for granted, though Plato wished to confine slavery to the barbarians, that is, to the non-Greeks. More importantly, for religious purposes, the uh, Bible itself could not in any 
at least manifest fashion, be called an anti-slavery tract. For example, the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, allowed Israelites to hold slaves. In the New Testament, Jesus never explicitly condemned the slave system that was around him. And Paul told slaves to be obedient to their masters and, according to the tradition, on one occasion returned a runaway slave to his master. Now, one may object, uh, and I think rightly, that some of the biblical themes held anti-slavery potential. According to the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people owed their national existence to a divinely sponsored slave revolt. Also, it might be contended that Jesus taught an ethic of love and that the Pauline epistles affirmed a spiritual equality of people. In Christ, for example, there is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, uh, bond nor free. These certainly are motifs that could be and later were put to anti-slavery use. But the fact remains that nowhere in the Bible can one find an explicit condemnation of slavery per se. What we see, it seems to me, in the 18th uh, century is the coming together of a number of intellectual trends that make it possible, not necessarily, not necessary, but possible, that one may, uh, question, might question slavery. Uh, I'll touch on these much more briefly than, uh, than I would like. Um, first, there was the appearance of an influential Quaker witness. The Quakers had emerged out of the religious turmoil in England in the mid-17th century. Initially, they stressed, well, throughout their life, actually, they stressed the inner light, the direct working of Christ in the soul. Initially, they manifested that protest against outward authority by denouncing paid ministers, by refusing to doff their hats before their betters, and sometimes by downright antisocial behavior, such as parading naked in the street as a sign. Had Quakerism not found some way of harnessing the sect, containing, I should say, the sectarian impulse, it would probably have disappeared like a meteor flashing across the sky. But this is precisely what Quakerism did manage to do. It managed to maintain something of its sectarian zeal for um, perfection at the same time that it remained responsibly engaged with society around it. Thus, it is not surprising that in this religious groups poised somewhere between sect and denomination, between sect and church, there emerged in the 18th century a significant anti-slavery witness. The 18th century also witnessed the rise of a philosophy uh, of uh, social contract and universal natural law associated with the Enlightenment. Of course, Natural law pre-existed this. The notions of contract pre-existed the Enlightenment, but where they were given new force, new centrality. Consider, for example, the fact that John Locke, in defending slavery, actually undermined it. He resorted to special pleading of a rather dubious sort to make it palatable to his basic political philosophy. He contended that legitimate political power derived from a social contract 
and that even after the entering into the contract, an, in, an individual subjected himself, uh, even after the individual subjected himself to the compact, he still retained certain unalienable rights. Slavery. He could not seem to countenance, at least in some of his writings. Slavery, he, he wrote, is so vile and miserable in a state and so directly opposite to the generous temper and courage of our nation that it is hardly to be conceived that an Englishman should, be, should plead for it. And yet, he did make an exception for non-Englishmen. <laughs> what he did not wish for the English, he could accept for others, a fact testified by his financial investment in a tra slave trading company. But for him, for, for Locke, uh, slavery was an exception to the social contract. He contended that uh, slavery was legitimate when persons forfeited their rights uh, to life as a result of war and when their lawful conquerors, rather than slaughtering them, made them slaves instead. Now, in a curious way, what this imposition of natural law and contract did, I think, was actually to narrow uh, the, the basis on which uh, slavery could be justified. The Enlightenment also was stressing an ethic of benevolence and utility. In the uh, 18th century, an extraordinary flourishing of the Enlightenment, particularly in Scotland, brought these themes to fruition. Writers such as Francis Hutcheson and Adam Smith stressed benevolence and utility. By benevolence, uh, the, the, uh, Hutchison meant an, an essentially aesthetic judgment whereby one takes pleasure in that which does good to others, and he assumed that this moral sense would feel repugnance in the face of human suffering. Moreover, uh, Adam Smith argued that slavery stood condemned by the principle of utility. It was bad for the welfare of society. Now, I'm simplifying a vastly complicated uh, uh, matter, but this um, Scottish Enlightenment was probably one of the key uh, taproots uh, of anti-slavery thought. All right, we have then, by the 18th century, a Quaker witness. We have the Enlightenment uh, setting forth certain ideas, uh, such as natural law, con uh, social contract, benevolence, utility. The 18th century was also the time of evangelical awakening, the rise of Methodism in England, and the so-called Great Awakening in America, a series of intercolonial revivals at mid-century, were two examples of an evangelical movement of international dimensions. Now, these revivals summoned Christians to a more ardent warfare against sin and convinced many that it was possible to attain a more nearly complete sanctification or holiness. More, more, that is, at least more so than previous generations of Christians have, had thought. So at the evangelical awakening summon Christians to an ardent warfare against sin. Opposition to slavery was not the inevitable outcome of this zeal. And one can point to many evangelicals who did not condemn slavery and, in fact, supported it. Nevertheless, the demand for a radical conversion and demonstrated holiness, a radical warfare against sin, if you will, coming at a time when justifications for slavery were ending in other quarters, 
prepared some evangelicals to oppose slavery with the same fervor that they condemned other sins. Uh, For example, John Wesley wrote a slashing attack on slavery uh, in 1784. One should also note that the American Revolution, with its soaring rhetoric uh, about liberty, provided a context in which anti-slavery could flourish. This despite the fact that many of the founding fathers were, of course, slaveholders. And I should also note that in significant areas, slavery was becoming economically weakened, or at least was perceived to be less necessary economically by some. I would not want to argue, and and would in fact would resist the reductionistic arguments once common that uh, anti-slavery is simply a reflection of an emerging capitalist economy, but I think we cannot hide from the fact that the moral argument about slavery became persuasive for the most part when there were increasing questions about its utility and value. That, very briefly, is a context out of which anti-slavery emerges in the late uh, uh, 18th century. Now, let me turn to the role of the churches in that, that movement. And I think it's important to see that anti-slavery is not of a piece. It developed over time. At the risk of, again, considerable oversimplification, I want to suggest that the first anti-slavery position common uh, among church people was a moderate or what I would call gradualist approach to slavery. During the revolutionary epoch and in the decades shortly thereafter, a number of churches or church-related groups took an anti-slavery stance. In part, their action reflected the culmination of the intellectual trends that I have just uh, mentioned. For example, some Baptist groups in the South took a stand against slavery during the post-revolutionary era in 1789. The Virginia General Committee uh, of the Baptists uh, this was composed of regional delegates from from throughout the the state, argued that slavery, quote, is a violent deprivation of the rights of nature and inconsistent with a Republican government. And notice how uh, language of of Republican polity and, and Enlightenment language of natural rights has just crept right in alongside of any Christian, distinctly Christian argument these people would wish to make. When Methodism was organized in 1784 as a separate denomination, the church adopted a strict rule regarding the holding of slaves. Within a year or two, every slave-holding Methodist was supposed to execute legal papers for the freeing of his or her slaves. In New England, uh, the Congregational Minister Samuel Hopkins, a pupil of Jonathan Edwards, encountered the slave trade when he took a pastorate in Newport, Rhode Island, And believing that the essence of true virtue was benevolence, he found in the slave system the very antithesis of benevolence and attacked it accordingly. The 1818 uh, General Assembly, the highest governing body of the Presbyterian Church, wrote or or delivered uh, the following. We consider the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another as a gross violation of the most precious and sacred rights of human nature. 
as utterly inconsistent with the law of God, which requires us to love our neighbors as ourselves and as totally irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel of Christ. Now, notice how, again, arguments such as the golden rule, uh, loving our neighbor uh, as ourselves, the, the law of God, is put side by side with an argument from the most precious and sacred of, of the rights of human nature. Yet the, at bottom, the, the churches were essentially gradualist and moderate in their approach to slavery at, at, in this era. In fact, the, this 1818 deliverance I have just quoted from the Presbyterian Church could be interpreted as a sop that was thrown to the more uh, militant uh, Presbyterians because at the same time the assembly was doing that, it, it, was, it was sustaining the deposition from the ministry of a candidate of a man in Virginia who had been vis- vigorously attacking slavery. The, uh, one of the chief institutional embodiments of this phase of anti-slavery which, by the way, wrought the gradual uh, emancipation of slaves in the, in the northern uh, states. But one of the chief ongoing institutional manifestations was the colonization society, cr- created in the second decade of the 19th century to colonize free people of color in Africa. This led to the uh, cr- creation, ultimately, of, of Li- Liberia. Now, the colonization society was a curious animal in many ways. It did win the support, I think, of genuinely idealistic individuals who thought that this was a way to end slavery by gradually drying it up, taking, uh, some of them actually sought government monies to, to, uh, and then certainly private contributions uh, to uh, uh, have slaves manumitted, freed, and then sent to, to Africa. And yet, the slave system was never attacked as an immediate evil, as a sin, or, or better. While slavery was recognized as, as an evil system, those who were complicit in it were not seen as sinners. And it was assumed that the solution to the problem would be gradual. And, of course, I should also allow, as one must, uh, that the colonization society offered a, a supposed solution that was in every way consistent with a racist vision of a lily-white America. But I think because we're so likely to see the latter point, I want to emphasize the former. There were many genuinely humanitarian people who thought this was the best way to end slavery. And one should also note that it was a, a policy that won the support of important African American leaders in the 19th century, though often for different reasons. By the end of the 1820s and into the 1830s, a new style of anti-slavery was emerging. It might be called uh, (laughs) abolition or immediatism. This is the uh, philosophy that is associated with the American Anti-Slavery Society, founded in 1833, and with uh, the best-known representative of that society, William Lloyd uh, Garrison. The abolitionists called slavery a sin from which everyone ought to repent. 
asserted that slaves ought instantly to be set free, rejected colonization as a time-serving stance, not a legitimate reform, and called for the granting of civil rights to the freed slaves. (coughs) Now, it needs to be a couple of observations here quickly. William Lloyd Garrison in the 30s moved on to a fairly heterodox or unorthodox position in matters of religion. And so it is easy to forget the fact that many of the the, the ground troops, if you will, the, the, the local volunteers, were not so much Garrisonian in their philosophy as they were evangelical Protestant. These were people who had been, many of them had been touched by the revivals of the 1820s and 30s, which sought in a very dramatic way uh, to to promote conversion and sanctification. Names such as Charles G. Finney uh, uh, come to mind here, or Theodore uh, Welt. Now, the third kind of of movement uh, has to do with politics more directly. The, the, the abolitionist, in, in a sense, the colonizationist phase is a partly political, partly voluntary uh, uh, effort to, to solve the problem. They're trying to enlist government, uh, but also relying on private uh, uh, action as well. The abolitionists were largely moral suasionists at first. That is, they wanted to rely on moral persuasion to convert P, uh, the nation away from its sinful behavior in the matter of slavery. It was rather like a revival altar call that they were offering. But by the end of the 30s and in the early 40s, many uh, perceived that a direct political confrontation was required. And thus we see in 1840 the emergence of the Liberty Party, which attempted to take the uh, anti-slavery impulse into politics. To the disappointment of its founders, however, the Liberty Party won only a minuscule number of votes nationwide. Uh, Subsequently, the uh, moral passion about slavery was fed into the free soil and later the Republican parties. But there it became mixed with a number of other issues that were not so clear Morally, it was quite possible, for example, to support free soil uh, and republicanism because one wanted to keep blacks out of territories or out of the north, and it wasn't necessarily a uh, uh, pro-black philosophy. These were broad tent movements, as as it were, which sought to bring, uh, combine the moral fervor of the abolitionists with other Concerns. They were, in other words, practical politicians were now trying to assemble winning coalitions. The political struggle became acute in the 18, uh, of late 1840s and into the 1850s after new territory was acquired through war with Mexico and it was necessary to decide whether or not that territory would enter the United States as slave uh, or free uh, ter- uh, states. Now, in the midst of all of this, the churches did not form a moral consensus. This needs to be seen and emphasized. In 1844, the main body of the Methodists divided 
over the question of whether one of their own number, one of their, one, one of their bishops, could hold slaves. In 1845, the Baptists divided. In 37, earlier, the Presbyterians had already divided, and the role of slavery there is a little harder deter- to determine. It appears to have lurked in the background. <laughs> At the same time, there was emerging in the South, and even among some northern uh, uh, Christians, a strong pro-slavery uh, ideology. Whereas earlier it had been uh, thought by many in the South that slavery was a gradually dying institution, now it was defended by many theorists as a positive good, one that was certainly in accord with the literal message of the Scripture. And some uh, Southern uh, clergy then would, would, would throw the charge of heresy and unbelief at their Northern counterparts, insisting that the reason that the Yankees could support anti-slavery is that they didn't believe this literal letter of Scripture. Well, this is the kind of, of moral confusion, if you will, that was wrought by the anti-slavery uh, 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 movement. Just one closing thought on, I'd love to take this into the Civil War, but you'll never stop me if I do that, so I better quit. I want to emphasize something that is a kind of using one of Sean's remarks as a jumping off point. Abolitionism was in many ways one of the most morally admirable protest movements. And yet there was within it Uh, within many branches of it, uh, a lack of a willingness to compromise in a practical political way uh, that that could ultimately promote not success but failure. Let me give you one. We we think of them winning ultimately because of the Civil War. Let me give you one earlier example. In 1844, in the presidential election, one of the most catastrophic events, I believe, in American history occurred, and that is James K. Polk was elected president of the United States. He was not only a non-entity, he was a dangerous non-entity who got us into war with Mexico and provoked many of the later sectional crises. His opponent, Henry Clay, was opposed to getting involved in this adventure. Clay lost narrowly, and one of the reasons he lost is that this, is this abolitionist liberty party took away enough votes in New York State to deliver it to Polk. <coughs> Uh, supporters of Ralph Nader, here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, James Bernie was the Ralph Nader. Dan Buren should have won that election. That's Dan Buren should have won Well, I would like to thank uh, Sean for his uh, generous uh, introduction, and I welcome the opportunity to discuss the roots of the moral argument as it uh, pertains to uh, the history of United States uh, foreign relations. What do we mean by the term moral argument? In the grand sweep of United States foreign relations, it is an argument that seems to have employed every sense of the adjective moral, that is, relating to principles of right and wrong, or conforming to a standard of right behavior, or sanctioned by one's conscience or ethical judgment. Still, the argument that appears to have been most instrumental especially in the recent past, has been one that addressed the issue of human rights. 
It was, for example, only when the problem of human rights was captured in the faces of Bosnian Muslims staring through the barbed wire or concentration camps are highlighted in the details of the massacre at Srebrenica that the argument for intervention in the Balkans, a moral argument as opposed to one framed in terms of geopolitics, began to resonate. Yet another angle, commentators on what at even this early date discuss the lessons of the war with Iraq have underlined the role that the enforcement of human rights should play in legitimizing the use of military force. For example, Anne-Marie Slaughter, dean of the Woodrow Wilson School, made this point recently when she called for redrawing the lines of how the Security Council defines which threats to international security are sufficient to require the use of force. How would this approach work in practice, she asked? By linking the human rights side of the United Nations with the security side. In other words, by formally linking the kind of moral arguments presented against Saddam Hussein, arguments that the United States made outside the Security Council, with the kind of arguments for disarmament that it made inside the Council. By way of introduction, we should note that historians, quite predictably, have not been of one accord in viewing the roots of the moral argument or its significance for the history of U.S. foreign relations. At one end of the spectrum, there are those who have stressed the missionary and moralistic flourishes of American diplomacy. Former diplomat turned historian George F. Kennan traced this pattern to the deep strains of Puritanism running through American culture. Other historians, while identifying a streak of Puritan self-righteousness, argue that it is a mistake to think that such ideas as manifest destiny or America's mission or defending the free world derived from the 17th century theologians like Cotton Mather or Jonathan Edwards. There are other explanations. It makes more sense, some historians argue, particularly in considering the age of imperialism, to take into account the nationalist exuberance that afflicted all the great powers. We should also note that if there was a sense of moral superiority, it did not always lead to a messianic impulse in the conduct of foreign relations. Rather, a sense of exceptionalism frequently made Americans want to withdraw in disgust <laughs> from the world's woes. For instance, the neutrality laws of the, of the 30s and the activities of the American First Committee on the eve of United States entry into the Second World War arose in part from a fear that other countries carried corruption. One other note by introduction. I believe it is fair to say that the main reason, the question of morality, just to underline Sean's comments, and international relations is on the agenda today, is that moral arguments have played a central role in the recent debate over war with Iraq. For this reason, I will focus my remarks on three somewhat comparable episodes in United States history, occasions when there was a genuine and, in some cases, extended debate over the decision for war, occasions unlike December the 8th, 1941, when Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to acknowledge a fait accompli, that a state of war had existed 
between the United States and the Japanese Empire since the attack on Pearl Harbor. I will touch upon the background of the War of 1812, the war with Spain, and United States intervention in the First World War. Three wars of choice. My approach will be more descriptive than theoretical, but in taking this approach, I'm not suggesting any exact parallels that can be drawn between earlier episodes and contemporary events. Among other reasons, as Princetonian David Remnick observes in the latest issue of The New Yorker, historical analogy has been a crude instrument in the service of moral and political certainty. And besides, only a few years ago we were told that we were at the end of history. The War of 1812. What is striking to me about the rationale for war in 1812 is the secondary role played by the moral argument. Certainly, impressment, impressment of American seamen raised a particular issue of human rights. In addition, Jefferson earlier had underlined the principle of respecting neutral rights in calling for an embargo against Britain. Still, when we examine the arguments made by the war party, the hopes of 1812, the controlling arguments involved not only perceived threats to the independence of the new republic, national honor was at stake, but opportunities for territorial expansion. On the other hand, the moral argument is quite visible in the positions taken by those who opposed war. For example, Federalists objected to war with Britain on the grounds that war would corrupt fundamental Republican ideals. Moreover, there was the very rather interesting idiosyncratic argument advanced by some New England clergymen that war with Britain meant, in effect, being allied with the Antichrist, Napoleon Bonaparte. How could the Republic join the ranks of a tyrant whose designs threatened the existence of Britain, defender of the Protestant faith? Among the opponents of war, no one was more eloquent in advancing a form of moral argument than Daniel Webster, who outlined criteria for the resort to arms that Arthur Link, had he been the biographer of Webster instead of Woodrow Wilson, might have called the higher realism of Daniel Webster. What did Webster say? If we could perceive that the present war was just, if we could perceive that our rights and liberties required it, then war would in some measure cease to be horrible. But we are constrained to say that we cannot in conscience ascribe the foregoing characteristics to the present war. We deem it necessary to every justifiable war that only that its justice be as plain and visible as the light of heaven, but that its objects be distinct and clear in order that every man may see them that they be great in order that every man perceive their importance, that they be probably attainable in order that every citizen may be encouraged to contend for them. An eloquent formulation of a particular moral argument, one that might have served the cause of the opponents to the war with Iraq, but an argument that in the end did not deter the decision for war. The war with Spain. Once viewed as a weak and indecisive president who yielded to war hysteria, William McKinley is now portrayed as a de decisive commander-in-chief, one with his own agenda, a slate of war aims that he pursued with a firm grasp of strategy. In the words of one biographer, 
neither spineless nor bellicose, McKinley demanded what he thought was both morally irreproachable and essential to American interests. But whether we are considering orthodox accounts of this chapter in American history or revisionist interpretations, the moral argument looms large both in the debate over war with Spain, but also in the subsequent and perhaps even more contentious debate over the acquisition of an American empire. To a large extent, a moral argument for war with Spain had been made even before the sinking of the battleship Maine served as a catalyst for synthesizing a range of arguments, moral, political, economic, strategic, for intervention in Cuba. For a number of years since the outbreak of the Cuban Revolution in 1895, the popular press, especially the purveyors of yellow journalism, had published accounts, some quite sensational, of how Spanish authorities were violating the human rights of the Cuban people. Still, it was incumbent upon McKinley to spell out his own version of the moral argument when he called upon Congress to authorize the use of force. In setting out reasons for intervention, humanitarian grounds were listed first. Referring to the horrors of the Cuban conflict, McKinley declared, it is no answer to say that this is all in another country, belonging to another nation, and is therefore none of our business. It is especially our duty for it is right at our door. In other words, the citizens of Cuba required protection that no government currently afforded them. McKinley was not alone in forcing the moral argument. Republican Senator George F. Hoare of Massachusetts, who later became an anti-imperialist, stated that the United States could not, quote, look idly on while hundreds of thousands of innocent human beings die of hunger close to our doors. And Lyman Abbott, well-known pastor of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, thought that war would be an answer for America to the question of its conscience. Am I my brother's keeper? But as was the case with the War of 1812, opponents of the war, particularly those who later opposed the annexation of the Philippines, invoked a theme that echoed <coughs> some of the misgivings of the Federalist. Imperialism contradicted American moral and political traditions. Imperialist practice abroad would erode freedom at home. As historian Robert Beisner puts it, the majority of those who resisted overseas expansion were desolated by a sense that this imperial adventure marked the failure of the national mission. Melancholy proof that America no longer stood above other nations in morality and wisdom. And so for not the first or last time. We find the moral argument in various guises framing the debate over United States' role in world affairs. Intervention in World War I. It may seem superfluous to consider the role of the moral argument in making the case for United States intervention in the First World War. If not within the ranks of the political elite or the public at large, at least in the mind of Woodrow Wilson, perhaps a consummate idealist to occupy the White House, the moral argument seemed to occupy center stage. After all, Wilson was the one president, other than Jimmy Carter, who had professed to make human rights the centerpiece of his foreign policy. We should note, of course, that not all historians who have described Wilson as a proponent of the idealist, moralist tradition in foreign relations have done so in order to cast him in a favorable light. When one of his recent biographers, John 
Schultz, Northolf, author of Woodrow Wilson, A Life for Peace, quotes such Wilsonian phrases as eternal principles of right and justice, principles that appeal to people who form the organized moral force of men throughout the world. He quotes them to make the point that Wilson's so-called moral majority existed only in his poetic imagination. He was totally out of touch with reality. We also should note that not a small number of historians have delineated portraits of Wilson as anything but an exemplar of idealism. Instead, we have Wilson, the crypto-imperialist, Wilson, the quintessential Clausewitzian commander-in-chief, a wartime leader who carefully, even cynically, calculated the correlation of force and diplomacy. Nor should we overlook Wilson, master of realpolitik, who, in calling for a declaration of war against Germany, was seizing the moment that was most propitious for assuming the role of arbiter Mundi, presiding over the creation of a new world order. As someone with an interest in the conduct of war, I myself find the Wilson who orchestrated American grand strategy to be a markedly different president from the Wilson who pursued peacetime diplomacy. It is commonplace to note that the content of the 14 points was as much as an instrument of propaganda as a statement of a liberal peace program. But less attention has been given to Wilson's rhetoric as wartime commander-in-chief, rhetoric that is quite different from the language that underlay his pre-war call for peace without victory. Let us consider Wilson's not-so-well-known Flag Day speech of April the 6th, 1918. Imperialism had brought the world to war, he said, and Prussian militarism prevented peace from being achieved by any means other than armed conflict. Wilson concluded his oration. There is, therefore, but one response possible from us. Force. Force to the utmost. Force without stint or limit. The righteous and triumphant force which shall make right the law of the world and cast every selfish dominion down in the dust. Now, these are strong words from a president who only a year earlier had told the nation, we shall, I feel confident, conduct our operations as belligerents without passion. (laughs) Still, it is Wilson, an exemplar of idealism, and a moral approach to foreign relations that retains a hold on the popular imagination. Otherwise, why would Paul Kennedy, ten days ago in the Washington Post, why would Paul Kennedy describe the policy of George W. Bush as a mixture of Wilsonian idealism and Reagan muscularity? Or why would the New York Times entitle a review of Paul Berman's new book, Making the Liberal Case for Intervention, quote, Terror and liberalism. What would Woodrow Wilson do? It goes without saying that the tone of Wilson's address to the Congress of April the 2nd, 1917, is more in line with the moral argument that most students of foreign relations, even today, associate with Wilson. Indeed, one might think this is a strange call to arms. Where are the words victory or battle? Where is the phrase vital interest? Where is the concept of national security? 
The term national security may not have been part of the lexicon of statesmen and strategists in 1917, but it was not unknown. Wilson's bat noir Theodore Roosevelt had invoked the concept on a number of occasions. Instead of a martial tone, we have such phrases as the sacred rights of the nation. Instead of references to military alliances, we have the call for a steadfast concert for peace. And there are the more familiar epigrammatic statements. We are the champions of the rights of mankind. The world must be made safe for democracy. Was the moral argument invoked by those who opposed war in 1917? Senator Robert La Follette did not hesitate to offer a variation on the theme when he declared, the president proposes alliance with Great Britain, which, however liberty-loving its people, is a hereditary monarchy with a hereditary House of Lords, with a hereditary landed system, with a limited and restricted suffrage for one class and a multiplied suffrage power for another, and with grinding industrial conditions for all the wage workers. But in 1917, the story takes a different twist. In March of that year, Wilson himself had voiced a moral argument against war. As he explained in an interview with Frank Cobb of the New York World, I think I know what war means. Once you lead this people into war, they'll forget there ever was such a thing as tolerance. To fight, you must be brutal and ruthless. And the spirit of ruthless brutality will enter into the very fiber of our national life, infecting Congress, the courts, the policeman on the beat, the man on the street. Conformity will be the only virtue. And every man who refuses to conform will have to pay the penalty. If there is any alternative to war, for God's sake, let's take it. But was there an alternative? April the 2nd, 1917. It is a fearful thing to lead this great peaceful people into war. But the right is more precious than peace. And we shall fight for the things which we have always carried nearest our hearts. For democracy, for the rights of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government, for the rights and liberties of small nations, and for a universal dominion of rights by such a concert of free peoples as shall, as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself at last free. Thank you both very much. I want to open this up as soon as I can to, uh, to questions, um, but I also want to give a few impressions. I've been, I've been hearing this for the first time as you have, so my impressions are just as inchoate, as I suspect most, many of yours is as well, are as well. <clears throat> but let me try and, and um, structure a conversation. And it has to do with both the past and the present, and picking up on some of the things that actually both of you said, but Jim in particular, the idea of, of there being specific historical moments when philosophically, politically, things come together to raise questions about things that hadn't been raised before. You know, why, the question is not why slavery wasn't there. The question is what, how does anti-slavery emerge? Which led me to wonder, really what we're talking about then is are there moments in American history or American foreign policy in particular, given the colloquium, 
when those kinds of questions emerge, when there are convergences, when something comes together that we can identify as marking a genuine shift in um, our understanding of how we conduct ourselves both domestically and in foreign policy that provide a new way of thinking. And that there are various components to that, and the question is whether that is occurring today. The components that you talked about, um, Jim, specifically were both religious and secular. Um, <clears throat> Quakerism, evangelical religion, etc. Um, and but the confluence of certain Enlightenment ideas, specifically the Scottish the Scots Enlightenment, and how that produced something new, a new set of questions, which then led in a number of directions, both gradualist, etc. Always remembering that the abolitionists never freed the slaves. It was the Grand Army of the Republic that freed the slaves. So force and moral argument, you know, often go together, and perhaps moral argument cannot win without force. That's one question I, I do want to raise. The question is, what's going on today? What's been going on recently? And whether we see that a similar kind of convergence, if that is in fact the way to look at these things, um, which I suspect it is, whether that kind of convergence is going on. And, I, and looking around, I do see elements of it, but there are parts of it that seem very wispy to me. So maybe we wanted to talk about, maybe we could talk about that. <clears throat> on the more secular side, although it has a religious aspect, what Paul talked about, and I think it's right, the ideology of human rights, which emerged, you can see it in Wilson, but it really emerged with great force under Carter, and then became, was really picked up in the, the, at the end of the Soviet Empire as the primary way in which I think the United States projected itself in the world as opposed to the Soviet Union with a whole ser series of causes, whether it be Poli Polish solidarity or, you know, Soviet Jewry, what have you. That became, that was picked up by Reagan and it was picked up by Bush and it's um, uh, certainly out there, certainly picked up by Clinton in Bosnia. So is there a sort of new secular ideology which came out of the war against totalitarianism of human rights, which is both secular but has religious connotations, certainly that Jimmy Carter brought to it? Is that coherent? Is that what's going on here? Is that being brought to bear in the current, on the current uh, scene, in particular with Iraq? Then there was the religious side of it, and this is a more wispy to me. Because we do hear about um, great changes, great shifts, which you've studied as well, Jim, in, in American Protestant life in particular. Um, I don't know if it's the Fourth Great Awakening or the Fifth Great I've lost count of the numbers of Great Awakenings. But in the middle of certainly an, a, a great outburst of evangelical enthusiasm in terms of church membership, etc. You cannot drive around America without seeing new evangelical churches popping up everywhere. To the extent that a, 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 an explicitly religious and indeed, especially, it's not quite so explicitly, but it's there, evangelical Protestant idea has been injected into the rhetoric of foreign policy, particularly by the president. Is that the religious component that we're seeing today converging with the idea of human rights that producing, mm -hmm. is that producing something that's genuinely new? And then out of that, one always needs a trigger, you know, an incident, something that happens that can bring all that together with great force. And I submit that one of the, that trigger might have been the atrocities of September 11th and the trauma that that caused not simply the American people but the world. And out of that trauma had, may be this brew, if you will, this mixture of secular and religious may have in fact produced something. Or on the other hand, there's nothing to it at all. <laughs> that, that all that I've been describing is, is sort of true but it doesn't really amount to anything for some reason or another. So the question I'm raising really is what, how we can look at the present through the lens of history, not, you know, David Remnick being, you know, to the contrary notwithstanding, although I great, greatly admire David, et cetera, whether history can be used to see whether, in fact, what's going on now actually stands up 
as a return to morality, comparable to, pre to previous ones, or is it something a little bit more amorphous? Do you want to address that? Well, um, let me start first with you, your uh, question, whether moral argument can work ultimately without force. Um, I suspect that any deeply entrenched injustice will not yield to moral argument uh, 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 alone. Um, I suppose one could say that uh, the British Parliament passing uh, the anti-slavery legislation in, what, 1833, <coughs> Uh, was in some sense the triumph of moral argument. On the other hand, uh, the interest of slavery was down there in the Indies, <laughs> uh, and there was always the ultimate threat of the, the power of the British Navy uh, uh, to, to, to enforce it. So, so even there, the implied threat of force, I think, was, was, was crucial. Uh, as you were saying this, I was reminded of a, of a remark that Mark Noble, who was here earlier this week, made in an essay uh, about uh, religion and the Civil War. Uh, he sees uh, the Civil War as an ultimate failure uh, for uh, a Christian moral persuasion. Uh, and he cl closes one of his essays by saying that ultimately the most persuasive theologians proved to be the Reverend Doctors Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, well, let, let me uh, respond to the question about uh, whether there are, uh, as you put it, um, historical uh, moments. And uh, I would say yes. I think one historical moment uh, in the uh, history of U.S. foreign relations is that moment at the turn of the last century when uh, there was a convergence of uh, arguments for the United States assuming a different role in world affairs. I mean, you know, one argument was the economic argument. Uh, the United States was on the verge of becoming the uh, premier industrial power in the world. There was this concern for, for uh, acquisition of markets. There would be surplus uh, products, surplus capital. Uh, who is going to buy the product? Where is the capital going to be invested? Beyond that, there was the uh, uh, continuing influence of the uh, outlook uh, captured in the phrase manifest uh, destiny. Uh, there was a kind of the political social uh, argument that the, the frontier having been closed, and the old argument that it was only because American society was moving westward and pressing against the frontier that somehow society was being constantly revitalized, being spared the corruption and stagnation of old Europe, a term that was being used even then, all of those arguments converged to uh, provide what uh, Robert Beisner, I quoted him in my presentation, calls a new paradigm uh, in the uh, conduct of U.S. foreign relations. Now, of course, I didn't mention military considerations, the need for bases, coaling stations, so forth. And then I would say there's a historic moment um, at the very end of uh, World War II when the uh, uh, so-called bipartisan consensus that uh, supported a policy of containment and a strategy of containment, even though strategies varied from time to time, for roughly 40 years was forged. And once again, because there was a convergence of arguments to include a moral argument mm -hmm. about an, it was not, I mean, Ronald Reagan was not the first person to refer to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. I mean, Adlai Stevenson, I, I, I was in high school in the 50s and I competed in declamation. And I just <laughs> loved to memorize Stevenson's speeches. I did not memorize Eisenhower's speeches. 
Um, but I remember this, you know, one speech uh, that uh, Stevenson gave. I think it was in Chicago. Maybe it was in the campaign of 52, where he talks about godless communism. Um, you know, it's rhetoric that's not all that far removed. Indeed, I would say it's hardly removed at all from the rhetoric of John Foster Dulles. But all of that contributed to, to the convergence that produced a uh, historic um, moment. And, uh, and I was very interested in the point you made about how, um, although on the one hand, human rights is placed at the centerpiece of American foreign policy, ostensibly by Jimmy Carter, and at a time when many within the Republican Party still adhere publicly to the uh, realist approach right. Certainly as it was personified by Henry Kissinger mm -hmm. and Nixon, how that then in some ways was captured mm -hmm. by Ronald Reagan. And with the assistance of William uh, Bill Crystal, who I think Absolutely. is here today, who, you know, who wrote a frequently quoted article about how uh, Reagan, how Reagan uh, made not just human rights, but uh, what should we say, um, America's claim to moral superiority. After all, it was in the same statement where he uh, um, um, described the Soviet Union as an evil empire, that he said we should not be embarrassed mm -hmm. to make the claim for moral superiority. Mm -hmm. right. Well, I want to open up this up. As, I mean, <coughs> I was also of the speech before the Berlin Wall where he says to Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was the great, you know, that was the end of the Cold War as far as I could, could tell. Uh, Ma'am, we'll go in sort of in order here. Yes. Uh, it seems that nature, thank you. The very nature of human emotion means that uh, moral human beings always face the potential of becoming moralistic or mired in moralism. So how does society attenuate that potential? Is it in compromise, like Dr. Moorhead um, briefly mentioned, negotiations without passion? Or is the whole notion of morality just a convenient rhetorical argument to move the electorate to a position where the leader wants them to be? I think the, the I think the moral argument at times is essential, but it's always dangerous. And, and but let me give a, 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 a for instance. Uh, uh, James Findlay has written a, a fascinating book called Church People in the Struggle, which looks at uh, the role that uh, the National Council of Churches, mainstream Protestant bodies, played in getting the Civil Rights Act acts of actually sixty what four and five uh, passed. He makes a pretty good case that through their lobbying on moral grounds with doubtful senators and representatives, they played a key role in getting passed, something that we all would think, <coughs> I think, very valuable. Yeah. I think it could also be argued that as the 60s wore on and the rhetoric increasingly, the moral rhetoric increasingly escalated from there, that then often there was a kind of a futile uh, and, and fruitless uh, self-righteousness that, that overtook people on a variety of, uh, of, of fronts. Uh, and if I may respond also to a point that, uh, that Sean was raising earlier about uh, turning points, it seems to me that religiously, if we look at who's active religiously now in the public sphere, uh, it, it's quite fascinating that the National Council <coughs> of a moderate to liberal group in the 60s, early 60s, was seen as the dominant force, played this major role. Today, the National Council of Churches is virtually moribund, and I hear a speculation that it will be dead within a few years. 
what we see instead as politically active is the, the, the so-called new religious uh, uh, right, the Christian right, whatever. Uh, uh, and if you want to have access, say, to the White House today, it pays to be a member of the latter group, not the, 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 the former. So that would certainly be a shift, a turning point, I think, in terms of the nature of the groups exercising religious influence. But to come back to your point again, I think that as essential as the moral uh, perspective is on key issues. It provides an energy uh, to, to motivate. I think it always runs the risk of running into the kind of arrogance and hubris that, that uh, uh, was in the uh, was noted in the remark by Reinhold Niebuhr that uh, with which Sean began. I mean, one one quick comment, and I'll. Um, I mean, if there was a movement for moral right that 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 got far on nonviolence. It was, in fact, a civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. and I, and it's true you needed the troops in Little Rock to get that done, right. and you needed to hunt down the Ku Klux Klan and all of that, but Martin Luther King made a great deal of difference. It's galling, I think, to some liberals today to hear much of the rhetoric of King being used on the part of, say, the anti-abortion groups. You make mm -hmm. the same kind of claims, moral claims, for the unborn, quote-unquote, as they see it, as, as the civil rights movement made for, for African Americans. It's galling, <coughs> it's, a, it's a philosophical conundrum. It's hard. But <clears throat> I do think that one comes back to checks and balances, which is in the American system, but is often forgotten by people who preach moral politics. It's not always moralistic, not to discount the abilities of people to use morality for all kinds of purposes. I mean, there's lots of cynicism, to be sure. But only to see cynicism is to, is to, is to, is to, is to give up the, 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 the positive claims of morality. The problem is there's these blind spots, because no one, can, no one is God. And those blind spots require within ourselves, as well as within our politics, institutions which can provide checks and balances. And the American system has some of that, but there are times when if you line up those institutions all the right way with one particular morality and one particular point of view, from the, you know, from the executive to the judiciary to the legislative, those checks and balances can break down. Mm -hmm. And that can be very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Because then the blind spots can, are, are never... Are never Interrogated are never are never questioned, and that's very very dangerous. Questions? Yes. Thank you. Uh, two questions for Professor Moorhead. And the first is, um, uh, since the Bible did not condemn uh, slavery, and in places even even taking that it's sort of a supporting it. How did these uh, different denominations argue that it is a uh, a, a violent uh, uh, a violence commit against God? How did they argue that? And the second question is uh, uh, the slavery, as you quoted in uh, Plato, it's a a form of conquest, or you know you have the choice being killed because he lost the war or being a slavery under the limited option, I'll prefer to be a slavery than being killed. Now that is radically different from uh, the later slavery concept, at least you know, I know very little about the slavery say, in practice in this country or since 15th century, is economic slavery. How did this change uh, uh, occurred? And I also have a very brief question for Professor Miles that I had an impression that, uh, maybe wrong impression from your speech, that democracy tend to encourage politicians to lie. And um, 
Is that correct observation? And if so, is that a necessary consequence of democracy, as, at least as democracy we understand it? Thank you. Uh, well, with regard to your first question, how was the Bible uh, used or uh, interpreted? How they argue, how they argue from it. Um, they begin to understand, the, this is a quick answer to, with a lot of uh, permutations, but the quick answer uh, is that they begin to see certain centers, I'd say, in Scripture by which others are to be interpreted. So, say, the liberation of, uh, of slaves from Egypt becomes the key point which you then use to interpret other things. Or uh, Paul's statement uh, that in Christ there is neither male nor, uh, nor female, Jew nor Greek, bond nor free. A statement like that becomes an argument for anti-slavery in, in the following fashion. It's asserted that there are certain principles that are put in motion by Christianity that when fully wrought out bring the elimination of slavery. So it's a non-literalistic way of reading the Bible. It's a dynamic way of reading the Bible that, that relies on certain passages, in a sense, taking on more weight than, than, than others. These become the, the keys to understanding the activity of, the, of, 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 of God. Uh, and in answering that, I forgot your second question. <laughs> oh, how did the slavery come <coughs> Oh. In fact, I think that perhaps it's how slavery becomes directly related to racism as we know it in the later time. Right. Well, and, and, and initially, I think you would argue that it was still seen as the same thing because these are believed to be people who have been conquered in war uh, and, and then are brought over uh, through the middle uh, uh, passage. And then other forms of argument are, are, are added. Uh, uh, arguments about innate black inferiority, blacks not being suited uh, to, to freedom, the argument that this is actually beneficial uh, for blacks, sometimes the biblical argument that the, the black race had been cursed to, to uh, perpetual slavery or eventual slavery. The basis for these added arguments is economic. I mean, the really right. driving force is economic. Right. You know, I, th I think that there, there certainly is a powerful <coughs> economic component in many of the pro-slavery arguments. It's argued that it's been not only beneficial to society, but that ultimately even beneficial to those who are enslaved, that they're better off, say, than the wage slaves in the, in, in, in the North. Um, I understood your question correctly. It was, did, does democracy calls political oh, leaders or presidents to lie? Well, I didn't want to convey that impression. Let me uh, let me give. You didn't, or you did? I did not. I did not want to convey that impression. Um, I guess I would say that at times I'll straddle the fence a little bit. Uh, I think democracy encourages presidents to quibble, which is maybe a little bit different from uh, lying uh, outright. But then on a more serious note, um, I think uh, you know in, in teaching the. Uh, History of American Foreign Relations survey course that covers 100 years. It's really very difficult at times to sort of pause and look at Wilson in 1917 or let's say 16, 17, 18 or Jimmy Carter when he comes into office in 1977 to look at the strategic and political setting and then look in somewhat comparable, comparable detail um, 
the setting in 1979. Now, why do I say that? Because I think frequently the charges of, let us say, hypocrisy, I think I hear that charge made more than, say, a charge of uh, mendacity. I think um, those who frequently make those charges are not taking into account how presidents adapt, indeed have to adapt, to different circumstances. You know, there's a charge that uh, Jimmy Carter was essentially being hypocritical when he said that human rights was at the centerpiece of his uh, agenda because later in his administration, what does he do? He stops by Tehran and proposes a toast to the Shah. Also invited uh, the Romanian dictator, Ceausescu, to the White House. Well, that's very much inconsistent, I guess, with the most ideal pursuit of human rights, if that is the centerpiece of your agenda. On the other hand, I think he was loyal to that uh, uh, policy, particularly in, gar in regard to relations with uh, foreign uh, relations with uh, Latin America. And then there were changes along the way, such as the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which no doubt causes Carter to uh, uh, adapt, let us say, to the polit international politics of realpolitik, as opposed to that of human rights per se. The reason why I quoted Wilson's Flag Day speech of, um, of uh, 1918 is that um, you know frequently uh, uh, one reads that um, Wilson betrayed the ideals of the 14 points when he orchestrated the negotiations with the Germans on the eve of the armistice of November 1918. Well, let's note, 14 points are delineated January 1917 on the eve of American entry into World War I at a time when it appeared that the war was stalemated. So there might be an opportunity for what? A negotiated settlement um, at a time when there would still be a balance of power. Peace without victory seemed to make sense. But by Flag Day 1918, what had happened? The Germans had dictated a uh, treaty of Brest-Litovsk to the Bolshevik uh, government, far more severe than the treaty that the Germans themselves accepted at Versailles later in 1919. The Germans had gone on offensives, offensives once again, the so-called Ludendorff offensives, you know, threatening Paris once again in 1918. So that underlines, um, you know, the image of Imperial Germany as being militaristic. And it has something to do then with uh, Wilson on the eve of the armistice, November 1918, saying, I will not negotiate with this regime that has presided over Germany's conduct of the war over the last year or so. So it's a different political, a different strategic setting, and I think it goes to, uh, and to a large extent, it explains why then Wilson is prepared to compromise some of the, you know, lofty ideals that he had delineated, er delineated earlier. Let us note that his Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt, I think learned a lesson, and that is, don't have 14 points. Have something more general, four freedoms, yeah, right. or an Atlantic Charter that can be interpreted in, you know, from a half a dozen directions. Uh, we have a lot of questions. We don't have much time, so we'll keep your questions brief. We'll keep our answers brief. Sir. To what extent do you think the media has changed the moral equation? Christians are seen as uh, radical lunatics as far as abortion is concerned, but there certainly are. There's no question the media has a much bigger role in our lives and in shaping political discourse now than it ever has before. But the media is also, um, how shall I put it, um, 
it's, it's pretty multifarious. I mean, there are at, there are places in, that you can watch. You can you can be have any political point of view, I think, and have your political point of view reinforced by the media, by yeah. some segment of the media these days. It's all been kind of segmented out. So if you like Fox, you go for Fox. Mm -hmm. If you like, you know, Dan Rather, you go Dan Rather. So so I think what's happened is that now it's gotten so huge that it's harder to understand its influence, precisely yeah. because of this factor. Yeah, it seems to kind of if I can. I'm sorry. So the Bible is ambiguous in many ways, so could the media be considered ambiguous in terms of maybe I'll pick and choose which one I believe? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. It seems to me that 40 years ago, the, the media, at least the television media, was much more homogenized. Yeah. We, we had three major networks. Uh, and um, the, the news tended to be reported in fairly similar fashion in, in, in all of those. Uh, even radio today plays, I think, a different role Watch with the radio. proliferation of the talk shows, um, that sort of thing. But I mean, I, I agree definitely with Sean. Mm -hmm. I mean, the media today reflects, in a far more accurate fashion, divisions uh, within American society, ethnic, uh, religious, uh, uh, etc., than was the case just 20 years ago. So, if anything, uh, you know, I mean, if, if I were running for office today, I think I would find it far more uh, frustrating trying to, notwithstanding all kinds of polls and focus groups, trying to, to try to read the pulse of the American people through the media, whereas at one time one could sort of read the pulse just by looking at editorials. The, the dangerous part of it, I think, and this is where we haven't gotten so far yet along, is the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine back in the Reagan years, meant that means now you can go, basically you can put out whatever you want and not have to have a respectful quote-unquote reply. That was seen as getting rid of an old dinosaur. However, I think that it has added to the coarseness across the political spectrum of political talk because you don't have to have anybody to respond to. You can just go out there and let it rip and, no, and, and, and you have no responsibilities, no check and balance to your own moral blind spots. Mm -hmm. And it also means that money talks in a way that it didn't before. So there's no constraint there. So whoever has the most money, and then you have to get into how you're going to get the money and all of that, I think that's unfortunate as well. So, you know, there's, it's not all hopeful. I mean, I don't mean to say that the, that the proliferation of points of view, that's fine, that's great. I like that. That's America. But it's also got a downside. Because I think things are more vicious now than they used to be. Just a quick question of uh, historical prognostication um, about the morality or the perceived reasons for war in Iraq. Um, I would argue that prior to the war, most of the rhetoric about why force was needed was not moral, regardless of some pronouncements of Bush here and there and sort of these general points he was making. It was very much based on weapons of mass destruction, threats, immediate threats to America, uh, and it's only been since the end of the war during which weapons were neither used nor have they been found that we've sort of embraced this moralistic argument of Saddam Hussein's atrocities and freeing the Iraqis. So will this war really be seen as a moral, a war that we went to for moral reasons, or will it be seen as rather than creating a new moral paradigm, creating a new realpolitik paradigm where we can just basically have, you know, preemptive war? I, I really don't agree with the premise of your question. Um, I think it is true that um, George W. Bush, who, after all, is not the most uh, fluent and eloquent um, uh, spokesman, perhaps, for his own uh, policy, uh, did not at times highlight the moral argument, but it was always there uh, in his uh, statements. 
I think uh, in his statements in particular, I think that uh, others within his administration placed more of an argument or, or, or uh, pursued an argument that was more uh, in lines with real politic. Beyond that, the moral argument was always uh, front and center in the uh, commentary of uh, Bush's principal ally, Tony Blair. If anything, he emphasized the moral argument or elaborated upon it in a somewhat more sophisticated fashion than the, uh, than the American administration. Now, I do, what is, what is interesting to me is that the media now is doing what? We talked about the media. Making the case for the moral argument. Look at the articles on the front page of the New York Times. You know, the discovery of the mass graves. These very, um, uh, just very graphic accounts, you know, of people having their ears cut off, their tongues cut off, their teeth pulled out with pliers. I'm not sure that um, either uh, Bush or Blair are going to have to work too hard to make a certain kind of uh, moral argument, particularly one that centers on human rights, uh, after the fact. Um, beyond that, I think I do agree, but I, 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 I uh, would just underline what, uh, once again, Dean uh, Anne Marie Slaughter said a few weeks ago on the eve of this uh, war, and that is to say... Uh, the outcome, the eventual outcome, will to a large degree <laughs> make legitimate one argument or the other. And I think it's a little bit too early to uh, make that judgment. Can, can I jump in and just add one little thing to that? I think that the reason that the weapons of mass destruction was, was such a prominent part of the early argument, right through Colin Powell's speech, et cetera, was that, the, that, that in effect they were working with a Pearl Harbor analogy, mm -hmm. that you can only stir the American people to go to war if they feel directly threatened or if they have been attacked. And, and they had been, we had been attacked. We hadn't been attacked by Saddam Hussein, but we'd been attacked. So the idea was to try and link those two events. And that was, a, I think, a, a political move in order to gain mass support, precisely because what Paul said is that morality very often can lead to isolationism. And much of their political base is, well, it's shifting, but they wanted to make sure they could get people to come along. And I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, once the war was won, then that necessity wasn't there anymore. And you know, other dynamics come into play, whether that'll continue to roll the way it has. But I do think that that, and it explains the difference between Britain and, and the United States, because, because Blair could be a Methodist and could, you know, make this point, honorable Christian soldier, and it made sense. In America, uh, it was there in Bush. It wasn't there as powerfully as, as, as it was with Blair. I think if Blair and Bush had both been able to make that argument, say to the French, and spoken over the head of Chirac and say, look, ladies and gentlemen, it's 1941 again. We're in a war against, you know, fascism, in effect. The French public would have split differently. I don't think the French government would have, but the French public would have. That was not done very effectively. But I do think that this original analogy to the attack and to 911 and that trauma helps explain why that became so prominent. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm really concerned. Um, I think we've gone from compassionate conservatism to muscular morality. Um, and I think we have maybe another turning point in the works here. And the business of putting on the cloak of morality, and that is energy giving, energy giving and uh, provides a lot of momentum, and then we tie in the uh, concept of patriotism, and we need to do that. Th those are forces that are very energy giving. And your point, Professor Wilentz, as well, that's restrained somewhat by checks and balances, <laughs> wants to be. But... 
it, it struck me there's a great irony here in that with the um, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, we don't have a massive check and balance that we used to have that kept us focused on, you know, the mutually assured destruction. So we now are the preeminent superpower. So we don't have that check and balance that was considered a great negative. Other evidence of that losses of checks and balances are uh, the UN, the impetization of the UN in this latest action the Congress, the loyal opposition, where were they? they n none of those checks and balances uh, existed. Um, demonstrations worldwide by millions of people in the pacifist movement were reduced to expressed as uh, focus groups. We don't govern by focus groups. So I'm real worried, given all of these, all of these trends, the, uh, that we're now going to be unrestrained in our use of this muscular morality. So I'm wondering for a, a new turning point, perhaps. And uh, I guess uh, I would just ask any, anyone to comment on that. Thanks. Possibly. Uh, we historians are good on the past. We're not so good as prophets. Uh. Well, I mean, I, I agree that I mean, what I said before, I mean, if you've got everything lined up, you can game the table in such a way as to, to remove all the checks and balances. Now, I was talking about the domestic, but you're absolutely right to bring in the UN and so forth. But absolutely, if you control all of it and your people are in charge of all of it, that's a very, very dangerous situation and you have every reason to be worried. Um, and in that respect, I mean, I think the election of 2000 and the outcome of the election of 2000 later was settled. You know, in, my, in my way, I mean, I don't think as poorly of James Polk as, uh, <laughs> as, as my friend here does. But nevertheless, <coughs> James K. Polk came in with no mandate at all. Right? He barely won that election. Yet he governed as if he had a huge mandate. And he governed from, depending on how you look at it, the right, the, you know, mm -hmm. he governed from his point of view, which was not very, uh, which, is, which was controversial. Um, the president administration has done the same thing, um, and, except it came in with less legitimacy. You would have thought they might have, you know, been more um, um, humble. No, they've mm -hmm. governed from the hard right domestically, and they've governed with, as you say, muscular um, interventionism abroad. The difference is that they have even less than, than, than Polk, they have no political checks and balances on them at the moment whatsoever because they control every branch of government and they're trying to control them even more with their court, court appointments, et cetera. So I think you have a right to be worried. I would like to think that I think the same thing if, if my, <coughs> I mean, look, I'm a Democrat, right? So I'll, I'll put that out on the table. If my side was doing the same thing, I'd like to think I'd be worried too for those, those Nipporian reasons, that no matter how strongly you feel about your cause, nobody is going to be without sin. And you're going to forget that. And you're going to fall into all kinds of problems if you have too much power. I think that, the, that do these people have too much power at the moment? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, in my view. Whether you agree with them or not. Do we have time? What time? It's actually after 10.30 okay, now. You finish up and then we'll finish. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think in many ways one can make the case that uh, you know, we are uh, on the precipice of a, of a Kind of a potential uh, turning point, but I'm, I um, I wouldn't um, I would not endorse uh, let us say some of your lines of thought. I do not, for example, see how the Reagan administration um, uh, viewed the role of the United Nations in the recent past as representing any uh, turning point. United Nations has not uh, uh, been in a, has not uh, in the uh, course of its history played that instrumental role in shaping the foreign policy of the United States or Britain or France or the uh, Soviet Union. Um, 
you know, had 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 uh, Colin Powell just sort of stayed there forever making the case, mm-hmm. I, I don't think any action would have been taken, particularly when he was being told by the French that they would veto any resolution calling for the use of a military force. So those who um, who who seem to be especially, um, uh, let us say, um, disheartened by the uh, failure to get the United Nations to provide something of an imprimatur um, for the action in Iraq, it seems to me, have been calling upon the United Nations to play a role that it very seldom played. I mean, after all, the United Nations did not take the lead in Bosnia, except when it had peacekeepers there who were very, very ineffective. But NATO. Um, NATO took the lead. Now, it is true that uh, the action in uh, Kosovo was endorsed in part um, by the United Nations. The French themselves, in the name of restoring stability in Africa, had intervened from time to time in their former uh, colonies without any endorsement of the United um, uh, Nations. So particularly in regard to, you know, just that one issue, I realize that was just one issue that you put on the agenda. But then also in regard to whether the Bush administration should have been um, deterred, let us say, by uh, demonstrations in Trafalgar Square or elsewhere. I do recall, you know, a a very distinguished British historian writing, who on the one hand disagreed (laughs) with Bush's policy, but said that he hoped what ever eventual decision Bush would make at this time would not be influenced that much by the demonstrations in Trafalgar because he was just old enough to have remembered how Chamberlain, you know, was greeted when he came back by Munich. Uh, You know, this policy of appeasement, which is um, um, so harshly criticized in retrospect, was one which was, of course, endorsed by public opinion in uh, Britain at the uh, time. So... You know, I, you know, like Jefferson, like to have a healthy respect for mankind. At the same time, I think it's just one of the factors that needs to be taken into account. And time after time, if we look back on history, we give high marks to presidents like even Franklin Roosevelt on occasion in 1941, who was very much ahead of public opinion in making the case for aid to Britain in 1940, the Soviet Union in 1941. You know, had he just followed uh, public opinion at that time, who knows? Uh, (laughs) The course of history, particularly the course of history uh, in Europe, could have been um, quite different. So, I mean, I share your concerns. At the same time, at, at this moment, I'm not maybe quite so pessimistic. We've already gone over time, but I think we have time for one more brief question, if there's one there. You went out there with one last one? Yes, just keep it very brief, and we'll be brief, too. Um, how do we go about separating our moral goals or our economic goals or self-interest, and our actions less moral if they uh, also benefit us? Hmm. Well, sometimes they coincide. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to be a spokesperson for the Bush administration, <laughs> but nevertheless, I would say in regard to the issue that's on the front page today, Iraq, uh, there is the economic uh, uh, argument. Uh, Rock sitting on top of the second largest uh, oil reserves in the uh, uh, world. Um, you know, after all, your fellow Princetonian, uh, James Baker, 10 years ago, no, 12 years ago, said, oh, that's what it's all about uh, in uh, arguing for intervention in uh, Kuwait. But simultaneously, the, the moral argument was made, perhaps not as effectively as uh, some would uh, prefer. So we, we should note that there are times and I think that was the case in 1941 when Roosevelt was saying, you know, we, we, we cannot be neutral in thought and uh, deed. We're going to become the arsenal of democracy, 
And um, there is a moral argument to be made, given the threat of, uh, of uh, Nazi Germany, fascism, what was already uh, visible at that time, not the Holocaust, but gross violation of human rights, not only in Germany, but within occupied uh, uh, Europe. But beyond that, you know, American national security was at stake. The survival of Britain was linked with American national security, so there was that uh, realist argument. And, you know, after all, there were those who d didn't like the prospect of losing indefinitely a European market for American uh, goods. So we should note there are times when the tension is not there. I think I would want to add, too, that uh, I think the long-term self-interest is often more likely to be in accord uh, than some short-term gain that, that we, we might attain. That, 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 the latter, uh, the former, is more likely to be in accord with, with perhaps a moral uh, judgment. I would only add that I think that the interests you're talking about are neither immoral nor moral. It's economic interests. They're amoral. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, will, they will follow as they will. Mm -hmm. But they can coincide, as, as Paul mm -hmm. said at times. They can also be um, uh, at odds with, uh, with, a moral, with morality. Um, it's, and one of the interesting things about history is to watch that flip-flop. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't attach any particular valence to it. I don't think that economic interests are bad necessarily, nor do I think that they're good necessarily. Um, I think that they are. And on that amoral note, <laughs> to end a discussion of morality, I want to thank you all very much for turning up this morning. Thanks.